Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you'll want to turn to the book of Habakkuk. We've been there uh, three other times. Today we'll finish up Habakkuk. We'll go to Nehemiah after Father's Day. Technically, we're in Habakkuk 3, but we're really going to summarize the entire book. Let's go ahead and ask God to guide us. Father, we're thankful for your inspired and errant word. We're thankful, Father, that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us, sometimes reveal ourselves to ourselves through your word. We're thankful that Habakkuk, though less than an ideal prophet, his book teaches us so much about you, about ourselves, about our need for the just to live, to walk by faith. May we be among the just. May we walk by faith. As we read in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, may we walk by faith, not by sight. Let this be our reality, our truth. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. I wonder how many of you know the name Araminta Ross or the nickname Minty or the nickname The General or The Black Moses. Clearly I'm referring to Henrietta Tubman, one of America's great heroes, a woman of incredible faith. If you know anything about Miss Tubman, you know that she was born around 1822, a slave on a slave plantation in Maryland. She, like all slaves, was treated to a number of terrible events, atrocities in her life. She was beaten for things that she should not have been touched for. She was a woman who suffered the pain of watching three of her older sisters be sold to another plantation, never to see them again. One day the plantation owner said that her brother, her younger brother, would also be sold. And she watched her mother take her brother into the shanty and say to the plantation owner, the first white person who enters this shanty, I will split his skull in two. And nobody entered the shanty, and her brother remained. She was forced to plow fields and kill muskrat and to be a wet nurse for others. She got married to a man named John Tubman. The day came when she was told that John would remain and she would be sold to another plantation far away. She would never see her husband again. And that was the day she decided that she would run for freedom. That was the day that she went to the Underground Railroad, traveling by night, sleeping by day, trying to hide from the pursuing slave traders 90 miles north to freedom. Some months passed, 
She had the opportunity to go back to the plantation that she was legally a slave of. She made her way by night to find her husband John to lead him to freedom. You can imagine the heartbreak in her life when she came face to face with John and he was shocked to see her alive. Assuming her as a dead person, he had remarried. And so she made her way back north. And she began to pray and think, what would God have her do with her life? And over the next decade, she made 19 trips back south, back across the Mason-Dixon line, back to where she was legally a slave. And she led over 300 fellow slaves through the Underground Railroad to freedom. She later stated that she could have led a thousand more slaves, but she couldn't talk them into risking their lives to run north. She was a woman of incredible, incredible understanding of Scripture. She was illiterate, but had memorized hundreds of verses of Scripture and shared them time and time again. Towards the end of her life, first she served in the Civil War for the North, 32 months as a cook and a scout, and then she suffered the indignity of the North not paying her what they had promised. The end of the Civil War, she joined the suffrage movement to seek the vote for white women. And again, she was put down repeatedly. And yet other abolitionists said that they never saw a woman with more faith. Soon she's going to kick Andrew Jackson to the proverbial curb. Soon she will be the third woman in American history to grace paper monetary dollars. She'll be on the $20 bill. Martha Washington, one year, was on a silver certificate. Pocahontas, five years during the Civil War. And soon, Miss Tubman. Why? Because she's an American hero. And she's a woman that endured a lot, but she never lost her faith. Think about that. Born a slave, beaten, separated from her three older sisters, never to see them again, having her marriage ripped from her, always on the lam. In the 1850s, she had a $40,000 bounty placed on her head and was nicknamed General Tubman, a nickname that was derisively given to her by her enemies. And yet she knew Scripture, she cited Scripture, she lived for God. And then the North bilked her out of her fair pay, and she was mocked again for the suffrage movement. And yet she lived a life of incredible faith. And that's what the book of Habakkuk is really about. The key verse in the book of Habakkuk is chapter 2, verse 4. The just shall live by faith. 
The just shall live by faith. Even when we don't understand what God is allowing. Even when we don't understand what God may be doing. The just shall live by faith. It's the theme of the book of Habakkuk. Let's back up for a moment. A thumbnail sketch of where we've been and where we're going. The book is from about 600 B.C., We know that the prophet Habakkuk is a prophet to the two southern tribes of Judah. We know that he's writing sometime between the fall of Nineveh, Assyria to the Babylonians and the fall of Israel in 586 to the Babylonians. The year 600 BC is as good a guess as any. We know it's a time period when the prophet has had enough of his own nation. They have been rebellious They have been thick-necked. They have been disregarding God's morality, his ethics, his word. And you remember the prophet has had enough. He wants God to act. He wants God to do something about it. And so we read in chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, O Lord, how long? How long shall I cry for your help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law, that is your law, God, is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. And we noted that we have a prophet that's angry with God. We have a prophet that challenges the justice, the goodness, the rightness, the godliness of God. Why has God not acted? And perhaps we can join the prophet. Perhaps in our life we've seen violence. Perhaps in our life we've seen injustice. Perhaps in our life we've seen wrongs seem to go unpunished. And we say, how long, O Lord? Shall I cry out violence and you do not hear me? You do not act. And then we come to the fifth verse where God says, Look among the nations, see, wonder, and be astounded for I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if you were told. And the sixth verse says that God is going to raise up the Chaldeans, that is the Babylonians, and he will chastise Judah. You see, the prophet's about to learn What we saw in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, says the Lord of hosts. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. God alone sees the beginning from the end. And you remember, we talked about the puzzle piece. We talked about the The piece that I put up on the screen, just one piece of a puzzle, a small puzzle, 200 pieces. And I ask you, what was the puzzle? And nobody could give the answer. Oh, in Marathon, they're smart. They got it. But the rest of us, we didn't get the piece of puzzle. The tape's going to Marathon, throwing them a bone, you see. (laughs) The truth is none of us knew. One piece, only 200 piece puzzle, and we were clueless. 
And yet how many pieces of the puzzle existed in Habakkuk's day? How many pieces of the puzzle exist today with 7 billion people on the face of the earth? And all that proceeds and all that follows. And God alone has the vantage point, the panoramic view. And God alone knows what God is doing. And yet Habakkuk, sometimes we have the arrogance to say, God, what are you doing? Why aren't you acting? And yet God is doing, God is acting, God is moving. We just don't have the vantage point to see all that God is doing. Habakkuk is so dumbfounded that he says this in verse 13 of chapter 1. You, God, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and are silent when the wicked swallows up more the man righteous than he? Habakkuk is stunned. He's stunned that God would use the Chaldeans to chastise the Judeans. There's no doubt the Judeans need to be chastised, but why would God use something more wicked to chastise something wicked but less wicked? Now we know the end from the beginning. We've mentioned it three times. We know in 60 years, in 539, God will raise up the Medo Persian Empire. He will raise up Cyrus II, Cyrus the Great, and they will bring chastisement to Babylon. We know that, but of course, Habakkuk doesn't. Just as you and I don't know what God's doing tomorrow. We barely understand what he did yesterday. We barely understand ourselves. Jeremiah 17, 9 says that the heart is deceitful and wicked. Who can know it? We don't understand what's going on in our life right now. How do we dare challenge what God is doing the panoramic view of all of history. And that's why the theme of the book of Habakkuk is that the just will live by faith. If we want to be just in the eyes of God, covered with the righteousness of Christ and empowered by his spirit, we will live lives of faith. With Paul in Romans 8.28, we will cry out, and we know that all things work together for good too. Two qualifications, for those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. God has it all together. And that leads us to chapter 3, today's text. Now chapter 3 is one of those chapters that I'm thankful I'm talking to mostly biblically literate people. Because it's all sorts of Old Testament allusions. All sorts of Old Testament illustrations. Habakkuk doesn't give us context, and he goes from illustration to illustration to illustration, and there's only one thing that links them all together, and that one thing is this. The situation is hopeless. There's absolutely nothing that man can do to rescue himself. There is no hope going forward. The circumstances on earth are going to collapse and crush God's people. They're done for, but God. And in each one of them, God shows up in a mighty, mighty way. Let's look at verses 3 to 5 of chapter 3. God came from Taman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. 
His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise, Selah. You notice that. It's a breathing mark. There's three of them in this chapter. And the breathing mark says, slow down. Slow down. Think carefully as to exactly what the illustration is trying to prove. Slow down. Verse 4. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand. And there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. <laughs> Some of you see Mount Paran. You see the locations and you know that we're talking about mountain regions down south of Israel, just north of the Sinai of Egypt. You understood perhaps the illusion. It's Exodus 7 to 12. It's a time period when the Jews are under the control of Egypt. They are slaves of Egypt. They are being worked to the bone. They are being whipped. They are being treated poorly. There's no hope. Humanly speaking, the Jews, numbering 7 million, will remain slaves. They will remain captives. There is no hope, humanly speaking. And God raises up Moses. And Moses goes, Exodus 7 to 12, he goes to Pharaoh of Egypt, and he says, God says, let my people go. And, and the Pharaoh says, no. And so the text that we just read said, God said, pestilence. He sent lots of pestilence, which means he sent the plagues. The water turned to blood. There was lice and frogs, lightning and hail. And the angel of death came and took the life of the firstborn of all of Egypt. And finally, Pharaoh said, get out of here. There was no hope but God. That's the point. The just shall live by faith. Faith in God. Faith in what God can do. Faith in what God is doing. Faith in God's divine plan. Because on our own we're going to run into things that we cannot face, we cannot handle. And yet God can. It's Romans 8.28. It's a summary, really, of Habakkuk. And we know that God works together for good all things for those who love him and those who are called according to his purpose. As I thought about this, I, I thought about an interview I read this year online Time magazine. It was about Mr. Martin, Traven Martin's father. I'm not about to enter the fray, giving you my opinion between George Zimmerman and Trayvon Martin, way beyond my pay grade. Only two people know what happened besides the Lord, because only two people were present, George Zimmerman and Trayvon Martin. But we know some things. We know that George Zimmerman was a neighborhood watch individual. And we know that he had a confrontation with Traven. We don't know who's at fault. And we know that Florida has a stand-your-ground law. And George shot Traven, and he died. 
We know that the immediate response was that George was not arrested, but that there were marches across our country, and he was arrested and charged with second-degree murder and manslaughter, and that he was acquitted in July of 2013. I'm not saying if the acquitting is right or wrong, way beyond my pay grade. But it's the interview that caught my eye. Mr. Martin is clearly a Christ follower, very clearly. You can't read the article any other way. And he has taken it upon himself to visit with bereaving parents all across the country. And he said, there's a hole in my heart it will never be replaced. But the way out of the darkness is prayer with God, communing with God. And the interviewer said, you're a man of faith, aren't you? Some say you're a chosen family. He said, I don't know anything about being a chosen family. He said, I can't understand what happened. I will grieve the rest of my life. But then he made this statement. He said, but I believe that God never makes mistakes. He's not blaming God for what happened. He's just saying that God will work good out of this. I don't know what the good is, Mr. Martin said. I can't even envision what the good is. But God will work good out of it. He's paraphrasing 2 Corinthians 5, 7. That we are to walk by faith, not by sight. He's paraphrasing Habakkuk 4. There's 2, 4. That the just shall live by faith. He's paraphrasing Romans 8, 28. That we know that God will work good out of all things for those who love him. And those who are called according to his purpose. That's a man of faith. And that's what God is trying to teach Habakkuk. That's what God is trying to teach us. Could Harriet Tubman ever understand all that happened? No. But she was a woman of faith. Could Mr. Martin ever understand all that happened? Not short of eternity, but he's a man of faith. Could Habakkuk understand what God was doing with the nation of Judah? No, but he should have been a man of faith. Do we understand all that God is doing? No. It's beyond our pay grade. It's beyond the panoramic view that we have, which is so small. And so the just are called to live by faith. That's the first illustration. Let's look at the second. I want to read verse 8. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? And you say, man, I don't know where in the Bible that comes from. Well, I think he's just continuing the account I think it is Exodus 14 and 15. He's talking about when the Jews have left Egypt. They plundered the Egyptians. They're on their merry way. They get to Yam Suf, the Sea of Reeds. Some of our translations read the Red Sea. And suddenly they see in the horizon that the Egyptian army is coming. They're armed to the teeth. They have chariots. 
and the Jews are having a wall of water to their back. They're untrained. They're unarmed. And there's no hope. There is no human hope but God. And God separates Yan Suf. And they walk across on dry land. And then as the army comes after them, the waters come crashing down. And they are saved. God to the rescue. Third illustration. Verse 11. The sun and moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows as they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear. That's a little easier for us. We know that that's Joshua 10. We know that General Joshua is going after the Amorites. They're routing their enemies. But the sun is setting and a prayer is uttered and God stops the celestial globes in the sky until the battle is over. There's no hope, not humanly speaking, but God. And God intervenes. And that's the lesson of the book of Habakkuk. When we come to the end of ourselves, when there's no hope, when we're in a mess, when we're in a situation, rather than despair, we look to God because the just shall live by faith. That's why the end of the book reads as follows, 17 to 19. Though the fig tree should not blossom, strike one, nor fruit beyond the vine, strike two, the produce of the olive fail, strike three. The fields yield no food, strike four. The flock be cut off from the fold, strike five. It feels like the Boston Red Sox at bat. There be no herd in the stalls, strike six. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. What does it mean for the righteous to live by faith? What does it mean to walk by faith, not by sight? What does it mean to believe that we know that God will work all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose? It means at least the following. If the book of Habakkuk is true, if Romans 8.28 is true, and if you and I are really living for Jesus, then the very things that you and I complain about are the very things that God will work for good, temporally or eternally. So what I rail against, God will use for good. Second, if the book of Habakkuk is true, and Romans 8, 28 is true. And you and I are living for Jesus. Then even evil in this world, God can turn into his good purposes. This doesn't mean that we embrace evil. We work against evil. We pray against evil. We stand against evil. But God can use evil for his divine purposes. I think of Joseph of Genesis. In Genesis 50, verse 20, his brothers sold him into slavery. And you remember when he has the opportunity to crush his brothers, he doesn't. 
But he makes this statement. What you intended for evil, God worked for good. That's the God we serve. I think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus has stood against evil, worked against evil, preached against evil, and is about to be the victim of evil. And you remember what he says. Take this cup from me. He doesn't want to be the victim any more than we want to be the victim. We stand against evil. We preach against evil. We pray against evil. We work against evil. But sometimes evil affects us because we're in a tainted world. And Jesus said, take this cup from me. But not my will, but thy will be done. And he went to the cross. And the greatest evil was perpetrated against Christ. He who knew no sin became sin for us. It's not the nails or the coarse wood or the spittle down his face. It's not the crown of thorns. It's not the mocking crowds. It's not those who cried out, King of the Jews, and now are crying out, crucify him. It's that the evil one is covered with our sin. That's evil. And yet God worked the greatest good in history on our behalf from it. And through faith in Jesus Christ alone, and believing that he died as the payment of our sin, and by asking him to forgive us of our confessed sin and the power of the Spirit to turn from our sin, we are given eternal life. This should bring real joy into our hearts. This should be a balm to our souls. When you and I face difficulties beyond ourselves, beyond our pay grade, beyond our ability to get out of, we look with faith to God. For the just will live by faith. I want to conclude by just reading verses 17 to 19 again. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, there be no herd in the stalls. Yet, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I'll take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength, not my own wisdom, not my own ability to get out of the situation, not my own ingenuity. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the book of Habakkuk. I thank you for the lesson that the just shall live by faith. Father, help these to be more than words. Help this to be more than a book that we have learned some insights from. Allow this to be reality in our lives. Help us to walk by faith as individuals, as families, as a church family. To walk by faith, not by sight. To believe that all things work together for good for those who love you and are called according to his purpose. 
Father, may we take our strength from you. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.